This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Bad Seeds, where I share cases of children killing their parents. This time, we're headed to Nebraska in the late 1950s, where a teen holds animosity for his mother and exacts deadly vengeance. This is the third chapter in the series, Bad Seeds, the case of Leslie Arnold. William Leslie Arnold was 16 years old in 1958. He was born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska. His parents were William and Opal. William Leslie went by his middle name, shortened to Les, so as not to be confused with his father. William Arnold, age 42, headed up the regional office of a direct sales company that sold household goods. His 40-year-old wife, Opal, was a homemaker. Opal Arnold had a reputation for being bossy and controlling. Some said that her husband was henpecked, that he often gave in to his wife's demands because he feared her temper and criticism. Opal had a mouth on her, and when she became angry, her insults could cut a person to the quick. No one wanted to cross her. Opal's mental health was fragile, resulting in two hospitalizations. This was something her family didn't talk about, and the danger of another of her episodes had them swallowing the responses when Opal lashed out verbally. Leslie's brother Jim was three years younger. Friends and neighbors reported that Jim was favored by his mother. Some even said that Opal treated Jim like an only child. It was common knowledge that Opal and Les did not get along. Neighbors reported that Opal showed little interest in her oldest boy. Whatever Les was interested in, Opal thought of as silly and frivolous. Opal targeted her son Les more than anyone else, according to sources. Mother and son had frequent arguments. There were even some reports that Opal threw her teenage son out of the house on at least one occasion. When locked out, Les Arnold slept in the stables with the horses at the racetrack located across the street from their home. He was made to apologize for his behavior before he was let back into the house. But there are other stories that paint Leslie as a problem child. He was known to be quick-tempered. He was easily frustrated and, when agitated, lashed out in anger towards family and friends. Kids in the neighborhood were afraid of Leslie because they never knew what would set him off. One time, the kids engaged in a friendly water balloon fight, but when Les found himself on the losing side, he struck out in anger, choking another boy. His little brother Jimmy was also a target of Leslie's wrath. Jimmy would later recall his older brother punching him while wearing socks over his hands so he wouldn't leave telltale bruises on his body. Les's temper had no stopper once it exploded, Jim said. I always had the feeling he didn't understand why mom and dad had me when they had him already. Jim would defend his mother, saying Leslie was often the instigator in their fights. Jim later explained that the time Leslie was locked out of the house was because he threw a tantrum, refusing to go on a family trip because he wanted to remain behind to spend time with his girlfriend instead. In fact, Most of the punishments Opal doled out to Les were due to his temper and erratic behavior, Jim said. 
Les would become destructive when he didn't get his way. He smashed up his model airplanes and even slammed his fists into the family automobile, leaving dents. One of Leslie and his mother's most frequent arguments concerned his girlfriend, Crystal. Leslie was a good student, earning a B average. He participated in track, wrestling, and baseball, and was also a cadet in the high school's ROTC program. He was musically talented as well, playing the tenor saxophone in the school's marching band. In his junior year, he began dating Crystal. Like most first high school romances, Leslie was all-consumed with his relationship and wanted to spend every moment he could with his sweetheart. When they weren't together, they were talking on the phone. Opal was critical of the romance. She felt Leslie should be spending his time studying, not wasting it with a girl she considered inferior. Crystal's father was a truck driver, and Opal said the family was trash. She and Leslie got into frequent arguments about his desire to spend time with his girlfriend. It was this same argument that would lead to the events of a very dark day in the Arnold family, one that would shock the community. On Saturday, September 27, 1958, 16-year-old Leslie Arnold was excited about a date he had planned with his girlfriend, Crystal. He had got permission to use the family car to take her to a drive-in movie that evening. Around noon, he called Crystal to confirm the plans for their date. The Arnold's telephone was located in the family's hallway. Wanting some privacy for the call, he stretched the phone cord down the hall and under the door to his bedroom, shutting it behind him. When his mother discovered this, she opened the door to his bedroom and began yelling at him that she didn't allow secret conversations in her house. She also made some disparaging remarks about Crystal. When her son began arguing back, she played her trump card. You're not allowed to take the car out tonight and there will be no movie date either, Opal pronounced and slammed the door. Leslie was enraged and frustrated. This was so unfair, he thought. At that moment, he hated his mother and lashing out in anger, he punched his bedroom wall. The only thing that calmed Les when he was so angry was listening to music. He loved music and was a big fan of Elvis Presley's. Trying to calm himself, he played some records and tried to think of how to change his mother's mind. After a short while, Les went downstairs to find his mother. He began to state his case for the reasons he should be allowed to keep his plans with Crystal, but Opal didn't want to hear it, and another argument erupted between mother and son. Les stormed out of the house, furious. He took a walk, but rather than calming down, his rage continued unabated. It was then that I got a crazy idea in my head, Les would later admit. By then, it was late in the afternoon, and now that he had a plan, a strange calm washed over him. He returned to the house and walked straight upstairs to his parents' bedroom. In their closet, a 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle was kept. He took it out. There would be some debate later, as to whether it was already loaded, as Les claimed, or if Les loaded it himself. In either case, he walked downstairs with the rifle and entered the kitchen. Opal was there alone, and Les pointed the rifle at her. Opal smirked at her son. She smirked at him, Les would later report. His mother wanted to control his whole life, he thought. She never cared what he wanted. She never listened to his side, and she certainly never changed her mind. Well, he was sick of it. 
She'd listen now by God, he thought. But rather than showing fear, his mother's face registered contempt and disgust for her son. Her words confirmed her feelings. Oh, what are you going to do? She sneered at him. Shoot me? At that moment, Les pulled the trigger. She'd laughed at him, but she would never again, he thought. Truth be told, he'd surprised himself. He hadn't known, well, hadn't known for sure, he was going to shoot his mother. The rifle blast was loud, and the first shot hit Opal in the chest. Leslie stood there for a beat while his mother fell backwards, screaming in pain. She kept screaming, and he couldn't stand to hear it. He stood over her and shot her five more times. Most of the shots were straight to the heart. Moments after shooting his mother dead, Les's father returned home carrying groceries. He walked into the kitchen and seeing his wife's dead body on the floor and his son standing over her screamed, What have you done? and rushed towards Les. He still had the rifle in his hands and now turned it on his father. He shot repeatedly into Bill's chest and body until he fell dead. Realizing what he'd done, Leslie began to panic. His legs buckled under him and he had to take a seat on the couch. Shaking and breaking into a cold sweat, it took him the good part of an hour to compose himself. But once he did, he came up with a plan. First, he had to hide the evidence of his crime. He grabbed up some area rugs from around the house and rolled each of the bodies into one. After dragging them into the basement, he placed a few more rugs over the bodies to conceal them and then bagged up the bloody rugs and placed them in the garage. Then he cleaned up all the blood in the kitchen as best he could. Luckily, he had a little more time before his brother was expected home. Jim had been working as an usher at a rodeo, and by the time he returned, Les had put everything in order. When Jim inquired about where their parents were, Les told him that they'd gone visiting. But Les still had to come up with a long-term solution to hide his parents' bodies and a reason for their absence. He spoke with a family friend who lived nearby, Rose Grossman. He told Mrs. Grossman that his parents had been called away out of town. His grandfather, who suffered from dementia, had wandered away from his home and gotten lost. They'd left to deal with his family emergency and asked him to take Jimmy to her home. Could she care for his brother until his parents returned? Of course, Mrs. Grossman agreed. That evening, Les dropped Jimmy off at Mrs. Grossman's and got ready for his date with Crystal. He picked her up in the family car, and they went to a drive-in movie. Afterward, they drove to a local diner to have hamburgers and milkshakes. Just a normal night out for two American teenagers growing up in the 1950s. But after dropping Crystal back home, Les returned to his own darkened house, where the bodies of his two murdered parents lay in the basement. He tried not to think about it and got ready for bed. Lying in his bed, Les's thoughts kept returning to the bodies in the basement. Just as in Poe's classic story, The Telltale Heart, the guilt of Les's horrible deed would not let him rest. He tossed and turned, and ultimately decided he had to get out of that house if he was to get any sleep at all. He took a blanket and pillow out to the car and tried to sleep there. But the near-freezing temperatures on that fall evening made it impossible to get comfortable. Finally, in the wee hours of the morning, Les returned to his bedroom, 
turned up his radio to drown out the imagined sounds coming from the basement, and finally fell into a fitful sleep. The next morning, a Sunday, dawned clear and cold. Perhaps to keep the normal routine so as not to rouse suspicion, or perhaps because he was trying to gain a sense of spiritual peace, Leslie attended church. But again, it seemed like the souls of his murdered parents were trying to be heard. It so happened that the sermon preached from the pulpit that morning concerned the sinfulness of crime. Leslie, sure it was meant for him, became visibly agitated. Finally, he could take it no more and fled the church in tears. With Jim still at Mrs. Grossman's, Les decided it was the right time to remove his parents' bodies from the house. That night, under the cover of darkness, he went to work, digging two holes on the property. After a few hours, he had dug a grave that was six feet long, two feet wide, and one foot deep. He returned to the house and unrolled the bodies from the heavy rugs, leaving them wrapped in just some thin fabric. He needed something to pull the bodies up from the basement with, so he took a few of his father's belts and, using them to wrap around the corpses, fashioned a makeshift pulley. He then dragged each body up, one at a time, through the kitchen and garage and out to the backyard, to the hole he had dug in the earth. There he tossed his father's body in first and then his mother's on top. He shoveled dirt over them, said a short prayer, and returned to the house. Les took the bloody rugs his parents had been wrapped in, placed them in the car, and then drove them to a bridge over Big Papillon Creek. He tossed them into the water. The concealment of his crime complete, he returned home, dirty, exhausted, and with blistered hands. As tired as he was, however, once again he could not sleep. He left the house and walked to Mrs. Grossman's, and asked if he could sleep there. She let him in, and as she got him settled in for the night, she noticed his exhausted state and blistered hands. For the next two weeks, Les continued to repeat the story of his parents being called out of town on a family emergency to anyone who inquired. He attended his high school classes as normal and spent time with his girlfriend, Crystal. Jimmy continued to stay with Mrs. Grossman. How long Les thought he could keep the ruse going is unclear, but perhaps he didn't think that far ahead. In any case, after two weeks with no sign of the Arnolds, their neighbor, Alfred Vacanti, began to grow concerned. He knew when Bill usually left for work and returned, as they often stopped to chat briefly with each other. The fact that they were gone a couple of days or even up to a week didn't concern Alfred too much, but after a full week, then he started to wonder— It was especially odd that the Arnolds had been gone so long and young Leslie was home alone. He couldn't imagine Bill and Opal being okay with their son unsupervised for such a length of time. So, on a Friday, almost two weeks after the murders, Mr. Vacanti knocked on the Arnolds' door. Leslie answered and gave the neighbor the story that his parents had gone out of town to see an elderly relative. It didn't seem right to Mr. Vacanti. He decided to call the local police to look into the story. Also over the past two weeks, Opal's mother had been trying unsuccessfully to reach her daughter. Finally, she phoned Rose Grossman, who told her that Jimmy Arnold had been staying with her since his grandfather had wandered off two weeks earlier. 
Had Mrs. Grossman spoken to Opal or Bill since then, she asked. Well, no, Mrs. Grossman answered. She'd only heard from them secondhand through Leslie, who was in touch with his parents by phone. That was odd, Opal's mother thought. She asked another question of Mrs. Grossman. Had Opal left instructions for the boys upon leaving? A written note or anything else? No, nothing, Mrs. Grossman admitted. Now Opal's mother was very suspicious. She knew her daughter ran her home like a tight ship and had specific rules and schedules for her children, especially Jimmy. That Opal had gone off without relaying any instructions to Mrs. Grossman was extremely out of character. Opal's mother decided to travel to her daughter's house to get to the bottom of things. Now suspicious herself after talking to Opal's mother, Mrs. Grossman made her own inquiries. She soon discovered that Bill's father did not have dementia, nor had he gone missing. She decided to check the train schedule for the day that the Arnolds supposedly left. She found out that there was no trains out of town on the day that Leslie said that they had left. She called the police to report her suspicions. The Omaha police got three separate reports on that day, one from Alfred Vacanti, a second from Rose Grossman, and finally a visit from Opal's mother, who had gone to the Arnold's home only to find her daughter and son-in-law missing. After taking all the reports, the police went looking for Leslie Arnold, the only family member who'd been seen at the home on Poppleton Avenue over the last two weeks. On October 11, 1958, exactly two weeks after Bill and Opal Arnold were last seen, police located young Leslie Arnold at his father's place of business. When they encountered the boy, he was on the phone with his girlfriend, making plans to attend church together the next morning. They began questioning him as to the whereabouts of his parents. Les repeated that they were out of town with a sick grandfather. Since they'd already spoken to Opal's mother and checked into the story with Bill's parents, they knew this was a lie. They told Leslie they needed to take him into the station to question him further. Once there, he was placed in a room to be interrogated by Detective John Barnes. Barnes told him what they had already discovered, how he had been lying about his parents leaving town, and now he said Leslie needed to tell the truth. It didn't take long for the whole story to come flooding out of William Leslie Arnold. He told them all the details about shooting his parents, burying their bodies, and disposing of the evidence. When the detective asked why he had shot his mother so many times, Leslie replied, quote, I can't explain it. She seemed to be in pain, and I didn't want to hurt her anymore, but I just kept shooting, unquote. He said he also tried to talk to her after she was dead, to say he was sorry. Detectives took Leslie Arnold handcuffed back to his house. There in the backyard, he pointed to a lilac bush, telling the police they'd find his parents' bodies buried underneath it. Bill and Opal Arnold's bodies were found in a shallow grave. As Les was being led away by detectives, a neighbor watching the scene cried out, Oh, Leslie, how could you? Leslie began shaking and crying as he was placed back into the police vehicle. He was taken to the county jail and placed in the juvenile ward. Crystal was allowed to visit him briefly. Afterward, Les would say her visit made him feel, quote, much better, unquote. Two of his uncles, Leonard Wisner and Benjamin McCammon, also visited the boy in jail. <laughs> 
Les also spent hours talking to the prison chaplain. How could such a bright, church-going young man from a good family do such a thing, the community wondered. The court wondered the same thing and sent Leslie Arnold for a psychiatric evaluation. The psychiatrist concluded that Leslie was not legally insane. He had repeatedly expressed remorse for murdering his parents, but had no good explanation for what he had done. Leslie said he'd simply lost his temper and hadn't thought things through before he reacted in anger. However, prosecutors would wonder at the truth of this statement. Leslie told investigators that the rifle had been loaded when he grabbed it out of frustration. But an empty box of shells was found lying in the grass on the other side of the backyard fence. If he had time to load the weapon, the prosecutor said, then that made his crime premeditated and he should receive a harsher sentence. But psychiatrists would also hear how Opal Arnold treated her son harshly, how she ridiculed him and controlled the lives of everyone in her family. In their opinion, Mrs. Arnold pushed an already frustrated and short-tempered young man into lashing out. His mother's behavior toward the youth was certainly a force in helping to precipitate his actions, the psychiatrist wrote in his report to the court. Partially due to the psychiatric report and partially due to his age, the charges against Arnold were lowered from first-degree manslaughter to two counts of second-degree murder. When he received his sentence of life in prison, the prosecutor assured the distraught young man, it's not going to be forever, Leslie. The state of Nebraska at that time normally commuted life sentences after about 10 years' time served. Leslie Arnold entered the Nebraska State Penitentiary as one of the youngest inmates ever incarcerated in that facility. During his time in prison, Arnold spent his time productively, finishing his high school diploma, becoming editor of the prison newspaper, a tutor for remedial students, and even playing saxophone in the prison band. He also expressed remorse for his crime, saying, I've learned a great deal since I've been in here. I wish I knew then what I know now. My parents were wonderful people. This I learned too late, and I'm sorry. How I went so wrong, I'll never know. I've got a lot of making up to do. Arnold became such a model prisoner that after five years, he was made a trustee. A prisoner could become a trustee due to good conduct while in prison and earn special privileges, including better work assignments and more freedom, even sometimes working or living outside of the prison walls. Being made a trustee often indicates that the inmate is close to a parole or release date. In fact, by 1967, Leslie Arnold was living in a trustee dormitory outside of the prison. He was in a minimum security unit and had a coveted kitchen work assignment. He had even earned the privilege of serving as a waiter for a Christmas party at the governor's mansion in 1966. Leslie Arnold appealed his sentence, claiming he had not been informed about his rights against self-incrimination before speaking with the detectives. He also claimed that he had been pressured to plead guilty by the prosecutor. In 1964, his appeal was denied. After this, he began to exhibit some anger issues in prison. It seems Arnold could still be set off when he didn't get what he felt was entitled to him. Once again, it was his freedom, but literally this time. In 1967, 24-year-old Leslie Arnold was most likely around two years away from being released from prison on good behavior. 
but Arnold didn't want to wait, and in July of that year, he took matters into his own hands. On July 14, 1967, William Leslie Arnold escaped from the Nebraska State Penitentiary along with 32-year-old inmate James Edward Harding. In the weeks prior to their escape, Arnold and Harding took turns sneaking into the prison's music room where they sawed the iron bars off the windows. After each bar had been sawed through, they were put back into place, held together with chewing gum. On the day of the escape, the two men were counted at the 5 p.m. cell check. They put dummies into their beds so as not to be found missing during the midnight bed check. They enlisted other inmates to get rid of the dummies the following morning. The prisoners would not be counted again until the 7.30 a.m. roll call, giving them a 14-hour head start before they were discovered missing. After 5 p.m., Arnold and Harding snuck out of their rooms in the trustee dormitory and entered the music room. Removing the bars, they climbed out of the window. From there, it was only 30 yards to the lighted prison fence, which was 12 feet high and topped with barbed wire. There was a guard shack located just 20 yards away. They managed to scale the fence and launch themselves over the barbed wire without being seen. However, as he climbed over, Arnold's shirt tail got caught, tearing and leaving a piece of the fabric behind. The men ran into the woods surrounding the prison to hide. Before long, a prearranged ride arrived to pick them up. The person was an ex-convict formerly incarcerated in the Nebraska pen. He had agreed to help them by giving them a ride away from the prison and providing them with clothes to exchange for their prison uniforms. The name of this convict would not be learned for decades. He drove the escapees to Omaha and dropped them at a bowling alley. At this point, Arnold took a chance on an old friend. Jim Child, a high school classmate of Leslie Arnold's, was relaxing at home watching television with his girlfriend when his phone rang. He picked it up and heard the voice of Leslie Arnold on the other end. Arnold apologized for contacting him, but said he and a friend needed help. He admitted that he'd escaped from prison and said he was in Omaha. Could he pick them up and help them get out of town? Arnold promised to disappear afterward and never bother Child again. It wasn't until Child was on his deathbed that he finally told anyone of this call or what he did next. As to why he agreed to help the convicted murderer escape from prison, Child said he remembered Leslie Arnold as an Eagle Scout and an All-American guy and thought he should have a second chance. Child and his girlfriend drove into the city and picked up the duo. He remembered realizing they must have already had help because they were wearing street clothes. Arnold was upset that Child had brought his girlfriend along with him. He had also brought the escapees more clothes, some food, and a little cash. Child first drove them to the train station, but no trains were scheduled to leave that night. So they continued on to the bus station, where he purchased the men two tickets to Chicago. As Arnold and the other convict boarded the bus, Child shook his old friend's hand and wished him luck. He never saw him again. But someone, maybe Child's girlfriend, must have talked because two weeks later, the FBI showed up to question him about the escaped convict Leslie Arnold. Child would later say, even though he was a seminary student at the time, he, quote, lied like crazy, unquote, telling the feds he hadn't seen or heard from Arnold. Six months later, while driving in town, 
he was pulled over by FBI agents and questioned again. He never admitted anything. A wide search covering four states was conducted for the escaped convicts, William Leslie Arnold and James Edward Harding. The prison warden was quoted as saying that neither inmate was, quote, sophisticated enough to remain at large for long, unquote, but he would be proven very wrong. Arnold and Harding first landed in Chicago and were given shelter for a few days by a priest. In Chicago, Arnold soon found a job washing dishes, and before long, he met a girl and moved in with her. Harding didn't stay long in the Windy City, but made his way to sunny Los Angeles. He was able to obtain an identification card under the name Fred Arthur Edmonds Jr. and kept himself out of trouble. He didn't drink or break any laws in order to remain undiscovered as an escaped convict. He remained free for just under a year when an odd coincidence would unravel his carefully held secret. On May 1, 1968, Harding was sitting in a bar when another patron thought he closely resembled James Earl Ray. Ray was wanted for the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who'd been gunned down the previous month. The woman called the police, who came and took Harding in for questioning. He was fingerprinted after his identification was discovered to be a fake and soon identified as the wanted escapee. Harding would say he was actually relieved to be caught. He'd spent the last nine months looking over his shoulder, waiting to be apprehended. It was no way to live, he said. He was returned to prison and earned parole in 1976 at the age of 41. He married, and upon his retirement, moved to Oregon, where he died of cancer in 2008. But William Leslie Arnold was still on the run, and there'd be nary a sign of him other than one possible sighting soon after his escape. In 1968, he may have tried to pay a visit to his high school girlfriend, Crystal. Her father reported that Arnold was spotted near their home, but ran off when a neighbor recognized him and called out to him. There were also a few other near misses in catching the fugitive. In 1968, there was a report that Arnold had been arrested in Chicago during the protests at the Democratic National Convention. But like many of the other protesters, he was released quickly and before anyone could identify him as the escapee. Then in 1974, seven years after his escape from prison, Arnold was stopped by police in Oregon for suspicion of driving while intoxicated. His fingerprints were run and came back with an FBI match as the wanted fugitive, Leslie Arnold. However, by the time this information was discovered, Arnold had already been released from jail. It would be the last physical sighting of Leslie Arnold. In the early 2000s, an investigator for the Nebraska Department of Corrections began reviewing cold cases. He became interested in pursuing new leads in the case of the escaped convict, William Leslie Arnold. While over three decades had passed since Arnold escaped from the Nebraska State Penitentiary, Jeff Britton set out to re-interview everyone he could reach to gather new leads. He interviewed Crystal, Arnold's brother Jim, and many others. He also searched fingerprint databases and had an age progression image made of Arnold to illustrate what he might look like at the age of 55. Britton also learned the name of the ex-convict who'd assisted Arnold in his escape in 1967. 
The investigator also interviewed his escape partner, Jim Harding. Harding told him something interesting. Arnold had once commented that his best bet would be to flee to Brazil. Arnold had heard that if he fathered a child in that country, he could not be extradited back to the United States. If you recall, this is the same reason that the fugitive Jesse James Hollywood fled to that country. I detailed that case in episode 149. Today, the Brazilian government's protections against extradition do not apply to naturalized citizens who committed their crimes before becoming citizens. The news of Jeff Britton's reinvestigation into the case of William Leslie Arnold made the papers. It was a mystery that Nebraskans had been interested in for decades. Realizing that if Arnold was still alive, he might also be following the news, Britton had an idea. He searched for his own name online and uncovered repeated internet searches for Nebraska investigator Jeff Britton. The ISP used for these searches was located in South America. Britton thought that his hunch that Arnold was hiding in Brazil might be correct. He also found that someone had searched the Nebraska Correctional Department online for Leslie Arnold, but had not searched under his name, but his inmate number, something that very few people would know, including, of course, Arnold himself. This search had also originated from South America. Still, that's where the trail went cold once again. Until in 2017, an internet sleuth named David Finney came across proof positive that Leslie Arnold had indeed entered Brazil decades earlier. David Finney was a citizen of Omaha, and had followed the news of Jeff Britton's search for his state's most infamous fugitive. Finney was also a genealogy buff and was experienced in looking for records on genealogy websites. In 2017, while searching through records on the FamilySearch.com website, he found an immigration card from Sao Paulo, Brazil, made out in the name of William Leslie Arnold. The immigration cards on the FamilySearch website were issued by the Office of Public Safety to foreign citizens given permanent residency. The records for Brazil had been archived in the Sao Paulo Public Archives. They had only recently been digitized by Family Search and uploaded to its website. The immigration card recorded William Leslie Arnold entering Brazil on December 7, 1968. Arnold's actual birth date and place of birth, Omaha, Nebraska, are also listed. It's probable that Arnold knew if he entered the country using false identification, it would constitute an illegal entry into the country, and he could be deported and or extradited back to the United States to face prosecution. This was Jesse James Hollywood's undoing, if you remember. So why wasn't the request to enter the country by a wanted fugitive flagged by the Brazilian government? Well, it looks like it was. On the reverse side of the card, there's a typed notation. Interpol or the International Criminal Police Organization, noted that the registrant was wanted by the FBI. Interpol was requesting more information from the FBI as to the status of this individual. Once again, luck seemed to be on Leslie Arnold's side, and he escaped another threat of capture. When this record was discovered in 2017, and the FBI was contacted, their records indicated that they had never been contacted by Interpol or the Brazilian government concerning Leslie Arnold. There is one more notation on the back of the immigration card 
that makes it unclear whether Arnold's status was actually investigated or not, along with some coded abbreviations which have not been deciphered. There are the words, without capture. It is unknown whether this indicates that authorities in Brazil attempted to capture the fugitive and failed, or if they decided not to take any action regarding Arnold at that time, or perhaps ever. A very good reason that capturing Arnold may not have been a priority at that time was that in 1964, four years before Arnold entered the country, a military coup had taken place in Brazil. At the time of his arrival, the country was ruled by a military dictatorship. Maybe this is why he picked that time and place to hide out, hoping that through all the upheaval, his entry into Sao Paulo, South America's largest city, would go unnoticed. If so, he played his cards well. In the more than five decades after his escape from a Nebraska prison, Leslie Arnold has never been located. If he is still in Brazil, he has probably changed his name. There are no current records in the country's taxpayer database for William Arnold, Leslie Arnold, or any other variation thereof. It is unknown if he is still alive or if he ever fathered a child with a Brazilian citizen. If Leslie Arnold is alive today, he will turn 78 years old this year. Jim Arnold, Leslie's younger brother, was just 13 when he was left orphaned after his brother murdered their parents. Jim was raised by relatives in Kansas City and is now a married music teacher with two children of his own. He has never forgiven his brother for destroying his family. When a reporter for the Omaha World Herald asked him about the news that his brother had fled to Brazil, he answered, If that's what he wanted to do, fine, as long as he stays away from me. But another family member says he feels some compassion for his cousin Leslie. Paul Wisner of Kansas City, Missouri, told the reporter he believes Arnold's crime was a response to his very troubled relationship with his mother. If he was in Brazil, Wisner said, and was staying out of trouble, he hoped he might never be captured. Quote, I think it would be better off if he's not found. I'd like to think he had gone beyond what he was at that time, didn't hurt anyone else, or didn't do anything he shouldn't have. I'd like to know he has done okay by the world, unquote. The Arnold House, located at 66 in Poppleton in Omaha, was purchased by Mr. and Mrs. Martin Schmitz not long after the murders. They still live there today. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime, and that will end the series Bad Seeds. I'll be back next week with a new series for the month of March. Follow the show on Instagram or Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod or Twitter at Upon a Crime to get a sneak peek of the next series. And if you like a bonus episode of Bad Seeds, you can listen to One More Case of Kids Gone Wrong by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime and for $2, $5, or $10 per month, you'll receive early release and ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and more. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Our copy editor is Crystal Dernan, and original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Special thanks to Lorena for helping with the research for this episode. Until next time, be good to one another.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.